Hello and welcome to EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm your host, Prudence Robertson. Update from the West Bank. In the midst of the Israel-Hamas conflict, a lone pro-life hospital in Bethlehem provides life-saving care to premature babies. President of Holy Family Hospital, Ambassador Michelle Bow joins us to share how staff are coping and tells us how we in the U.S. can help families on the West Bank. Pro-life laws in the states. The group Americans United for Life has released a comprehensive report on state legislation that is stopping abortions. We break down the report and look at the biggest wins and challenges the pro-life movement faces in the coming year. Abortion at the High Court. The Supreme Court begins a new term, but hasn't announced whether they will take on a case deliberating access to the fatal abortion pill, Mifepristone. Attorney Christina Squires joins us to discuss how this case could play out. As the war in the Middle East continues between Israel and Hamas, thousands of pregnant women and their babies in the West Bank are left with little access to resources and care. Estimates from the United Nations report that about 73,000 women in the West Bank are pregnant, with more than 8,000 expected to give birth in the next month. As hostage negotiations continue, some aid is being allowed in through Egypt. But these mothers and their babies' lives are at risk as basic necessities run short and access to clinics and hospitals in the region is blocked. Here, there is a shortage of capabilities in hospitals, and we are afraid, in light of these current circumstances, that things will become worse and that we will not find treatment for our children. At least seven of 30 hospitals in the region have shut down due to shortages. But one holdout hospital has a special mission. Holy Family Hospital is located just steps away from the birthplace of Jesus. The hospital specializes in neonatal care and is the only hospital in the region that can deliver and care for babies born before 34 weeks. When families receive care from Holy Family Hospital, they don't have to pay a dime, as the Order of Malta, who runs the hospital, covers all costs. Joining us now for reaction to this ongoing conflict is Ambassador Michelle Bow. She is the president of Holy Family Hospital and the Order of Malta's ambassador to Palestine. Ambassador Bow, welcome back. Thank you for being here. Please give us an update on what's been happening at the hospital during these past few devastating weeks. What are you hearing from the staff? It's a time of great concern and worry. Um, Bethlehem is out of the fray. Um, it is um, inland and um, not contiguous to Gaza. And while the eyes of the world are clearly focused on Gaza, the people in Bethlehem are suffering greatly. Mm. The economy is shut down because there are no pilgrimages. People are worried, and grocery prices have become exorbitant. Supplies for our hospital are short, and they've doubled in cost. So it is, it's a time of great concern. Um, towns and villages um, in the surrounding area are cut off from each other. And it is a um, it's a real feat for um, the staff to be able to come to the hospital mm. to make sure there's the best care for the mothers and babies. Yes, it seems like they're very isolated there in Bethlehem. I'm curious, though, has there been an influx of patients to the hospital and where are they coming from? The mothers are coming from sort of the greater Bethlehem region, although it's rather dangerous to travel between places because of the unrest 
Um, we normally deliver about a dozen babies a day, and that is rising. And the sad news is many mothers are coming in for preterm delivery because of the anxiety, mm. the shortage of water, and mothers are arriving to the hospital hungry because 95% of the salaries of the workforce are cut in Bethlehem. It's, it's really, it's a humanitarian disaster. Wow. And Ambassador, of course, all across the region, we've heard many reports of children being kidnapped, hurt, even losing their lives at the hands of the Hamas terrorists. What is your reaction to the violence? Um, I condemn all violence. We really need, especially for the children, to grow up um, psychologically safe and sound without trauma. And we, we need a ceasefire and we need for humanitarian aid to be let in. The people of Bethlehem have opened the schools. They're trying to give the children um, a great sense of normalcy. But it is a, um, it's a time of tension and fear. And this is a region that has known these kinds of tension and fears. It's a, a land of contrasts and juxtapositions. But in the midst of all of this, hope still is alive in Bethlehem. This morning, I got a call from a friend who announced to me that she was overjoyed. She's pregnant with her third child. She's been waiting for this baby for 10 years, and she just found out. And I thought, what a commitment to hope to know that um, in the midst of this sorrow and suffering, that this woman is just rejoicing and that she's going to be delivering a baby in difficult circumstances. But she's just overcome with the joy of a new life. And of course, like her other two babies, she'll deliver this one at Holy Family Hospital. So in the midst of the suffering, life goes on. And what better place to champion life than Holy Family Hospital in Bethlehem? Yes, praise God. And we have featured Holy Family Hospital on the show before. It has always served as a beacon of light in the Holy Land. For our viewers who are not familiar with the hospital's work, could you tell us a little bit more about its unique role in the region? Holy Family Hospital is a infant and maternity hospital. We deliver almost 5,000 babies a year. We have the only state-of-the-art level three NICU in the region. But the most special thing about Holy Family Hospitals, this was a gift to the Order of Malta from Pope John Paul II. And he gave us this hospital because we've had a thousand, almost 1,000 years of history of running hospitals, taking care of the sick and the vulnerable. And he knew that we would keep our promise to keep our doors open, to deliver care to all in need without regard to creed. And we are doing that the best we can. As you said, we are supported by the Order of Malta, but the Order of Malta is supported by people around the world, generous people in the United States and abroad, um, helping us to deliver life, peace, and hope 1,500 steps from the manger. Mm. So beautiful, a beautiful mission. And, and Ambassador, shifting back to the conflict for just one more question. In the weeks to come, will the hospital be part of negotiations to have more aid be brought in through Egypt and other avenues? And are we certain that this aid won't be taken by Hamas or people who want the war to go on? Um, how can our viewers help with all of this? We're doing our very best to make sure that there is everything that we need to keep our doors open to champion life for the most vulnerable. Um, we have a website, which is birthplaceofhope.org, and we're accepting donations which take care of the needs of our hospital to um, help the Christians in the Holy Land with food and electricity and medicine and to serve all who are in need at Holy Family Hospital, welcoming 
mothers, older women with menopause issues, and um, we're praying for the um, situation to clear up so we can resume the work of our mobile clinic, which goes and serves isolated communities in the desert. And our Christian presence is such a stabilizing force in Bethlehem, and we all need to storm heaven to um, let peace prevail. Um, the patriarch, Cardinal Pizzaballo, recently issued a statement, and he had a um, quote which I thought was just so meaningful and appropriate. And he said, as long as the weapons speak, it won't be possible to hear other voices. And so we need to pray for the weapons to cease and the voices of peace, calm, and reason to be raised up to champion life and the people who are so vulnerable there in the Holy Land. Mm, of course. Well, we, of course, are storming heaven for the situation that will be cleared up, especially for you and everyone at Holy Family Hospital who's working hard to continue to save lives. Thank you for joining us, Ambassador Michelle Bowe, President of Holy Family Hospital. God bless you. Thank you, Prudence. And back in the United States, pro-life representative Mike Johnson of Louisiana has won the House Speaker's gavel. His first move as Speaker after weeks of standstill on the House floor was to advance legislation to send aid to Israel. Our, our nation's greatest ally in the Middle East is under attack. The first bill that I'm going to bring to this floor in just a little while will be in support of our dear friend Israel, and we're overdue in getting that done. A member since 2016, Johnson has consistently voted to stop the funding of abortion here in the states and overseas. He co-sponsored a bill that would ban abortions at a point when babies in the womb can feel pain. In his platform for speaker, he said, quote, a just government protects life and honors marriage and family as the primary institutions of a healthy society. Prior to his election to Congress, he worked as a lawyer, working hard to shut down dangerous abortion clinics in his home state. In states across the country, pro-life legislators are hard at work. The group Americans United for Life, also known as AUL, tracks pro-life legislation across the nation. Their annual report celebrates more than 50 pro-life bills enacted in the last year. And the number of states with limits on early abortions before 12 weeks grew from 13 states a year ago to 23 today. Unfortunately, some other state governments have expanded access to abortion, and eight states have enacted shield laws to protect abortionists who send abortion pills to women in pro-life states. Harry Scherer is AUL's communications associate, and he joins us now. Harry, thanks for being here. What are the biggest takeaways from this report? I know that a major focus of it for you guys was the issue of chemical abortion. It certainly was, Prudence. Well, the main takeaway was that Dobbs was a historic achievement, but at the same time, it's proved to us that abortion is now an issue for the federal and state levels. And Catholics have a crucial role to play in advocating for life on both the federal and state levels. And Americans United for Life has always been focused on the states, at the very least because we recognize that a, a growing legal consensus on preborn personhood can more easily pave the way to preborn protections on the federal level. Mm. Um, so this past year, the, our, our state policy report that came out from this past year highlights 23 states that passed pro-life legislation, um, but we also offer a frank assessment mm. of the 21 states that passed anti-life legislation this past year. Mm. Um, this year has also been a lesson 
in the crucial role that governors play in vetoing anti-life legislation. For example, um, Governor Gianforte of Montana vetoed legislation that would have lowered parental consent for abortion laws from 18 to 16. Um, and then Governor Lombardo of Nevada also um, vetoed legislation that would have legalized physician-assisted suicide for the state, which would have made Nevada the 12th jurisdiction in the country to permit physician-assisted suicide. So all in all, um, it's proved that that Dobbs has brought the issue of abortion, um, making it a state issue again. Right. That's deeply concerning. Glad that you're tracking that. And Harry, though we've seen a lot of momentum in state legislatures, praise God, pro-lifers have seen some big losses at the ballot box. And a new report from the Society for Family Planning indicates that abortions have actually risen in the past year by about 0.2 percent, so a small number. But what's your reaction to all of this? It's proved that the Dobbs uh, decision um, has placed the onus back on state legislators and governors and on the federal level as well. So it, it wouldn't have been a natural effect of Dobbs that abortions would go down necessarily. Um, Dobbs put the federal government in a purported state of agnosticism about preborn personhood. So it wasn't a guarantee mm. that Dobbs would have necessarily lowered abortions. So this is why, uh, for us at Americans United for Life, uh, it, it just revivifies the mission uh, to complete these these initiatives on both the state and federal levels. Mm. Well, I really appreciate your take on that and for joining us to share about this report. Thanks so much, Harry Scherer of Americans United for Life. Thanks, Prudence. And now for more news shaking things up in the states. A judge in Colorado just ruled that abortion pill reversal can continue in the state. Colorado lawmakers made it illegal for medical practitioners to provide abortion pill reversal back in April. Bella Health and Wellness, a Catholic clinic in the state, has saved dozens of lives via abortion pill reversal and filed a lawsuit against the ban, saying it violates their religious freedom. District Judge Daniel Domenico ruled in favor of Bella Health, placing a preliminary injunction against the law. As the lawsuit proceeds, abortion pill reversal remains available. Those who still want this life-saving procedure banned have 30 days to appeal the pro-life ruling. And in Georgia, the state Supreme Court upheld a law that protects unborn babies as soon as their heartbeat is detected, usually around six weeks. This is a rejection of a lower court's ruling that wrongly deemed the heartbeat law unconstitutional. While the pro-life law remains in place for now, this won't be the last word, as the high court's decision punts the lawsuit back to the lower courts. White House Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre decried the news and promised that the Biden administration will keep fighting to codify Roe v. Wade. And briefly to Capitol Hill, pro-abortion lobbyist LaFonza Butler will not be seeking re-election in her 2024 Senate seat. Governor Gavin Newsom appointed Butler to fill the seat left vacant by Senator Dianne Feinstein upon her death. Prior to her appointment to Congress, Butler served as the president of the pro-abortion lobbying group Emily's List. She decided not to pursue re-election because she feels that serving in Congress is, quote, not the greatest use of her voice. Coming up, more updates from our capital city as we take a look at the latest pro-life news at the Supreme Court. Plus, a new institute advocates for the conscience rights of Catholic medical professionals. We have the details next.
You're watching EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Welcome back to our program. The Supreme Court is back in session, but the justices have not yet given an indication as to whether or not they will take up a case concerning the fatal abortion pill, mifepristone. Mifepristone is the first drug used in a chemical abortion, which starves babies in the womb of the nutrients they need to survive. This spring, a Trump-appointed judge sounded the alarm on these drugs, and in August, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that mifepristone should not be allowed to be sent through the mail. In response, President Biden's Justice Department asked the U.S. Supreme Court to protect widespread access to mifepristone. Danco Laboratories, whose factories make abortion pills, is backing the Biden administration. And this month, more than 600 Democrat legislators also hopped on board in support of the dangerous abortion drug, filing an amicus brief to the Supreme Court. And helping us unpack this legal battle over mifepristone is attorney Christina Squires. She serves as counsel at Cher Jaffe. Christina, thank you for being here. What happens next? When could we get an indication about whether or not the Supreme Court will take up this case? And do you personally think that it's likely? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. And in terms of what happens next? We have to wait for the briefing to finish um, for the process of seeking what's called certiorari at the Supreme Court, seeking review. So while Danco and the FDA have filed their briefs asking the court to take up the case, we are now waiting for the brief from the plaintiffs' groups opposing that request. And then once that briefing is done, the court will conference on the case and decide whether they want to take it. It only takes four justices to agree to take a case at the Supreme Court. And while there are probably four who might agree with the ruling, this would be the court's first major case on abortion since Dobbs. And I'm not sure the court yet has an appetite to dive back into the abortion issue. So other than that, there are also major issues in the case that might prevent review, such as deference to administrative agencies. This involves, you know, looking at what the FDA has done, which poses an additional hurdle to getting the case taken up because that's a very controversial issue, looking at administrative agencies. I see, I see. Thank you for pointing that out. And hundreds of pro-abortion lawmakers representing 49 states filed an amicus brief um, asking for the Supreme Court to protect abortion pills. I'm wondering if you could just break this down for us. What is an amicus brief? How does it impact the Supreme Court's review of a specific case? So an amicus brief uh, is what's called a friend of the court brief. So it's a third party who has an interest in the case, but is not either the plaintiff or defendant. And so at this stage, when they're trying to seek Supreme Court review, you will only see amicus briefs on behalf of the party seeking review. So here, that's the FDA and the abortion pill manufacturer, Danco. Mm. Uh, You will not see any of the briefs that were filed at the lower courts on behalf of the plaintiffs um, supporting the Fifth Circuit's decision. And that's because they don't want to indicate that the Supreme Court should take this case because the Fifth Circuit ruled the way that they would want to. So you'll only see briefs at this stage that are supporting the FDA and Danco. Mm. And I think the court does take seriously a lot of the arguments that are raised by these third parties, um, depending on how reputable they are and if they are bringing a perspective that's different than what the parties are saying. Mm. Very interesting. So we're, we're hearing a lot from the pro-abortion side now because the courts so far have ruled in favor of restricting mifepristone. Um, I'm curious, shifting gears a little bit, Numerous pro-abortion states have enacted, quote, shield laws that would protect abortionists who send abortion pills to women in pro-life states where they've ruled that that's not legal. What would happen in those states if the Supreme Court does end up taking this up down the road? Um, 
and they were to rule in favor of pro-life states. So if the Supreme Court were to rule in favor of the pro-life states, then the use of mifepristone would be severely restricted. Um, so all of the regulations that the FDA had put in place previously that they've gotten rid of would be back in place. So mifepristone would still be available. You would just could not get it via telemedicine, could not get it in the mail, things like that. So it would really take away that concern of mailing them across state lines because that option would no longer be available if the Supreme Court agreed with the Fifth Circuit. Mm, I see. Christina, are there any other important details that we haven't mentioned that are important about this case for pro-life Americans to know about? Yeah, I think one really important aspect, if you take a look at the amicus briefs that have been filed and even, you know, the FDA's and Danco's, is that there's a big ar underlying argument here about what's more important, abortion safety or abortion access. And a lot of the parties that have filed at this stage are saying that access is more important than safety, which I think is something that everyone should be thinking about mm. and reading a lot of the briefs, you know, on the other side at the lower courts to really engage with the safety arguments and see if that issue is actually more important than access, which I would argue definitely is. Right, right. Well, we know in the pro-life movement that there's no such thing as a safe abortion, so it's important to be paying attention to that. Christina Squires, counsel at Share Jaffe, thank you so much for joining us. We're going to continue to track this case and appreciate your expertise. My pleasure. Thank you. A new institute on Capitol Hill is working to protect the rights of those serving in Catholic health care. Launching in November, the Catholic Healthcare Leadership Alliance's Public Policy and Advocacy Institute will work with legislators on the federal and state level to advance fundamental principles of Catholic health care. Namely, they'll work to protect the conscience rights of Catholic health care workers who wish to opt out of performing abortions and transgender surgeries or prescribing birth control. The announcement comes after the Biden administration proposed changes to weaken conscience protections earlier this year, a move many pro-life advocates believe could force doctors to provide abortions. Grace Marie Turner joins us now. She is the president of the Galen Institute. Grace Marie, thank you for being here. Why is there a need for this new institute now? What issues do Catholic medical professionals face when they refuse a procedure on religious grounds? There are so many violations of conscience rights for physicians who want to, and, and other medical professions who want to practice according to their faith, mm -hmm. and for patients who want to have have physicians and medical medical professionals that will look out for their interests and their ethical and moral interests. And so often, as we have seen far too 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 many times, the state is intervening in that from the Little Sisters of the Poor to directives that doctors have to perform procedures in order to be able to keep their licenses, that they're medically, that are ethically re reprehensible to them. So there absolutely needs to be a strong voice to for these for those medical professionals to the policymakers who are who are writing those laws and writing those regulations to stop them to allow people to practice according to their faith. Absolutely. And tell us about the Galen Institute and how you helped in the creation of this Institute of Public Policy and Advocacy. 
I have worked for a long time with Dr. Steve White, who was president of the Catholic Medical Association, then head of their health policy committee, and then also is the founder of the Catholic Healthcare Leadership Alliance. Mm -hmm. He really has a vision for making sure that the voices mm -hmm. of Catholic leaders are heard in the policy debate. And as they came to Washington, they came to Washington last this last spring to introduce the larger alliance. And they met with many members of Congress who've introduced legislation and certainly supported legislation that protects life, that protects conscience, and that just basically says we must protect religious liberty. But they said they were so glad to see an organization that really is like a chorus. They, they have heard a lot of individual voices, but this is a chorus of voices. But they also need recommendations for, okay, what, what do we need to, what laws do we need to pass? What regulations need to be implemented? What's on the radar screen that we should be worried about that could be a threat? Mm. So that's really what the Institute does. It really creates ideas for advocacy in public policy and also provides ideas for members to advance legislation, but also to warn them of threats that they see coming so that they can they can be aware and take to take proactive um, action. Well, that's very encouraging. It seems like the movement is leveling up on this front. Grace Marie, even with conscience protections in place, Catholic healthcare workers can face judgment or even harassment in the workforce, in their own workplace, for sharing their beliefs. So how else can they really be supported in their life-saving and life-affirming work, aside from all of the great work that's being done to enact laws on these, on these fronts? You know, I've, I've always throughout my whole career at the Galen Institute, and you asked earlier about the Galen Institute, we are a public policy institution that supports patient-centered health policy. And I've worked with Dr. White and many others together for a long time. But this is really an effort to, to help doctors who feel so isolated. You know, they know that, that the policies that they're now having to live under are not right. But, but a single voice is really hard for members to hear. And so so joining the Catholic Healthcare Leadership Alliance, supporting its Institute for Public Policy Research and Advocacy is very important. And the, the advocacy part of the Institute for Public Policy is really important because that's going to be the vehicle for doctors to be able to get together through the grassroots efforts to be able to have their voices heard and to get educated on what what legislative initiatives might they want to support if they knew about them? Sometimes there's fledgling ideas. Sure. Or what threats are they are presented that they need to make sure their legislators and, and others, both at the state and federal level, are aware of these threats. So it's really a chance to give medical professionals not only representation, but a larger voice in the policy debate. Of course. Well, there's certainly strength in numbers, and we're grateful that you're giving these doctors a place to go to. Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Thank you for joining us. That does it for this edition of EWTN Pro-Life Weekly. I'm Prudence Robertson. Don't forget you can find us at EWTN Pro-Life on all social media platforms, Twitter, now X, Facebook, and Instagram. We're there. And if you're interested in more news from our nation and world, go to EWTN.com forward slash pro-life and sign up for our newsletter, The Pro-Life Pulse. Remember, life is a gift. Your life is a gift. God bless. 